Before we get started with today's episode, I will share the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of the podcast, This Speech Life, and I receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com. Lindsay, our guest, also receives an honorarium for being today's guest on the podcast. Lindsay also is the co-owner of the company Help Me Grow Speech, where you can find materials related to speech therapy. There are no non-financial disclosures to share today. Hello and welcome to This Speech Life, a weekly audio course and podcast from speechtherapypd.com, exploring all things related to school-based SLP practice. I'm your host, Caitlin Lopez, MSCCC SLP, a pediatric SLP with 10 years experience in the school setting. Each week, we will cover three need-to-know aspects of that episode topic, two resources related to the topic, and one actionable strategy for tomorrow. Welcome to this week's episode of This Speech Life. We are very excited that we have Katia Piscatelli with us. You might know her from Boho Speechy on Instagram. And before I get into what we're going to talk about today, just a few housekeeping items. As a reminder, at the conclusion of today's course, please log into your course portal and complete all modules, especially the module entitled Quiz to make sure that you get your live credit for today. All right, and then before we jump into the episode, I do have to report our disclosures. So I am Caitlin Lopez, the host of This Speech Life, and I do receive compensation for hosting this podcast. I have no relevant non-financial disclosures to report. And for Katya, she will receive a honorarium for appearing as a guest on this episode of This Speech Life. And she also is an affiliate for Meaningful Speech, which I'm sure will come up later in the episode. Those are her financial disclosures. And then her non-financial disclosure to report is she is a friend of Marge Blanc, which will also probably come up in our episode as we dive into all things natural language acquisition and gestalt language processing. So like I said before, we're just really excited to have Katya with us here today. She lives and works in Sacramento, California, but she was raised in the Midwest. She's the owner of Total Spectrum Speech Incorporated, where she specializes in working with autistic clients using the natural language acquisition framework to further language development. Before starting her private practice, she worked in the public schools for two years, where she gained a lot of experience with AAC use as well as a variety of other speech and language related needs. In her free time, she loves to hang out with her dog bandit, travel, try new foods, and lift weights. So Katya, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to chat. All right, we are just gonna jump right in. What are three things that we need to know about natural language acquisition and gestalt language processing? Yeah, I guess I'll start with the basics. So three, basic ideas. One, when we're referring to gestalt language processing, there's two ways to process language, analytic and gestalt. Analytic is what most speech therapists were taught in grad school and what most of the general public understands as normal language processing. So kids will learn 
single words. And then once they have 50 words or so, they'll start combining them into two word phrases and so on until they're creating their own grammar. So the analytic processing is very much word by word processing. These kids understand that words are single units and they understand that they can build with them over time to create grammar. Gestalt processing is kind of the opposite. So gestalt language processing is also very common and normal. There's nothing disordered about it. It's just a different way to process language, but it's lesser known, which I'm trying to change. But gestalt processing with these students, they don't see single words as single units of meaning until much later in their development. So these kids start with gestalts, which are basically just whole units of language. This is often lines from TV shows or entire movies or words or phrases that they've heard from a parent or friend, but they often pick up on the intonation of language far before they're picking up on the single word units. So these kids see gestalts or these often larger phrases as single units of meaning instead of seeing single words. So the biggest difference is analytic processors start with single words and build Gestalt processors start with these larger chunks and slowly break them down. So it's kind of opposite processes. And then once they break them down, they can use them like an analytic processor would. But basically, there's two ways to understand and develop language. And then when we're talking about, so that's number one, I would say that's the biggest overarching thing to understand when we're referring to Gestalt language is that it's a form of language development. Number two, I would say when we're referring to NLA, that is natural language acquisition. And that basically just describes the process that Gestalt processors go through when they're developing language. And there's four main stages to that. So to summarize, stage one would be these larger gestalts or chunks of language. Stage two would be starting to break those down. So they might take a piece of this one and a piece of this and put it together to create something kind of new. Stage three, they break them down even further into single words. So for the first time, they're really using and manipulating single words. And then stage four is when they start to build grammar for the first time. So Yeah, that's kind of that natural language acquisition process just describes their process of acquiring language, breaking it down, and then eventually being able to use it totally spontaneously. So that's what it means when we refer to that. And when I say I do NLA therapy or natural language acquisition therapy, I'm kind of doing therapy based on that framework that these kids go through. And I think the third most important thing would be to know that Most autistic students are gestalt processors. A very large portion of them are. And so that's definitely important to know because so many of us work with autistic students and yeah, they process language a lot differently. So yeah. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you for breaking that down. I think those that haven't taken a course yet, they see the two terms of natural language acquisition and gestalt language processing. And it's like, wait a second, which one is it? Because I know that was me at first before I enrolled in the course was, what do I refer to it as? I want to make sure I'm calling it the right thing. And so it was helpful to know, okay, this is how we describe the learner. This is how we describe the framework or the process. So thank you for breaking that down. 
It is interesting. I would say the majority of the kids on my caseload that are autistic are Gestalt language processors, even the ones who are nonverbal. Like I'll see them act things out, even if they're not using words. So that's been really fun to dive into and to, to see that come to life. And I do think I actually have a non-autistic or she's not exactly neurotypical. She is a little girl with CP, but I think she's a Gestalt language processor as well, just from the way that she speaks, lots of intonation, lots of scripts, but she's not necessarily stuck in her stages. Mm -hmm. So that's been really fun to see. So as we kind of jump into the different stages and these three basic ideas, I know that we only have an hour to discuss what this is, and that's really not enough time, which is going to lead me to my next question. What two resources do you have for us? Yeah. So there's a lot of, well, there's increasingly more resources on this subject. When I first discovered it a couple of years ago, there was not much. There was just the research, but there wasn't anyone teaching you step-by-step how to do this. So now there is, and it's really great. So you mentioned before in my disclosures, the Meaningful Speech course. So that's led by Alexandria Zakos, and it basically teaches you all about gestalt processing as well as natural language acquisition, how to identify the stages, how to move students through the stages. So that is really the most step-by-step course if you're really looking to how do I use this therapy and you're a beginner and haven't used it yet. And then Marge Blanc, she really paved the way. She coined the term natural language acquisition. So she's done a lot of work in this area of the field. And she published first a book called Natural Language Acquisition on the Autism Spectrum. And that book is really great. It details a lot of different students' stories. So I I think it's a great one for parents because often as they're reading, their child will probably be similar to at least one of the, the students in there that she writes about. And Marge Blanc also has some courses on the subject available on northernspeechservices.com. And those are really great too. They kind of go a little bit more in depth. So if you're ready for an even deeper dive into that, those courses are really great. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. And then, you know, she hasn't given herself as a resource, but Katya has a lot of great information on her Instagram, Boho Speechy as well. So you can definitely check her out. And she offers a lot of great information for parents as well. So I've definitely recommended her account for parents to follow and to kind of check things out. When I've started to just start to kind of plant that seed with some of my families that I'm working with of, hey, have you noticed this? I've noticed that your student or your child, you know, uses a lot of of scripts or they repeat movies or they repeat songs. And I've started to ask families, where do you think that, like, where, what songs, what movies, you know, are these things coming from? That way, so I can watch too, because sometimes I know that the scripts aren't always literal. For example, like we had, I had a this where she would say, wheels on the bus, wheels on the bus. And so we thought that she, and this is before my introduction to natural language acquisition, 
And we thought like, oh, she wants to sing Wheels on the Bus because I sing a lot of songs with my preschoolers. And and she was actually asking to go. Yeah. (laughs) You know, get on, like, let's go. And so mom started to notice when I had suggested to mom, hey, I'm noticing that she's talking a lot. And she, a lot of her scripts were unintelligible too. And so I asked mom to start paying attention to those things. And then mom noticed, was the one to crack the code of wheels on the bus. Because she was noticing that she was saying it every time that they would get in the car. Awesome. And so that was really fun to see. And now she, we've given her some new scripts of let's go and things like that. So that's been helpful. Yeah. As we kind of dive in, I know this is really difficult to do in like an hour, but can you give us an example of maybe what therapy would look like at a stage one? Yeah. So when we're looking at moving a child through the stages, every stage kind of cascades into the next. So our goal, say we're in stage one, is to set them up to move naturally into stage two. So to do that in stage one, our goal is to increase the amount and variety of gestalts or scripts that they have in their repertoire. Because once we do that, once they have enough, then they will naturally start to mix and match them and move to stage two. If they don't have enough, then they're going to stay there. So, and yeah, we'll leave it at that. But yeah, so in stage one, we, it's really all about modeling language for them that we think they're going to pick up. So this has to be language that is meaningful to them. And this often, so it's, you know, a declarative language strategy in essence, but there's little tweaks that we can make that really work well for Gestalt processors. One of those being to really try to talk in their words because these kids are using echolalia. So they will repeat what you give them just as it sounds. So if you say, are you okay? They're going to say, are you okay? When they feel hurt because that's what they've attached to being sad or hurt. So Instead, I always advise parents to think about giving them the words that they think they want to say. So if your child comes to you and they're hurt, instead you can model, I'm hurt, I need help, I need a Band-Aid, instead of, are you okay? So just trying to model language that is in their words, essentially. And yeah, and just always thinking about what, what they might want to say in that moment. And then these students learn through gestalts, not single word input. So it's very different. Even if they're minimally speaking, they're toddlers, they, it seems like they would start at that single word level. For these students, that's not the case. If we model single words, we are not setting them up to the language acquisition stages. So we want to focus on modeling mostly at the phrase level. There's some single word gestalts like look, wow, that are okay, but we don't want to be modeling, you know, lion, tiger, go, stop. We want to be modeling at the phrase level because when we give them enough phrases, then they can start to break them down, but they have to start at that that level before they're ready to break them down. So modeling phrases, modeling in their words, and oftentimes these kids are really attracted to high emotion language, high intonation. 
That's why these kids are often very musical, really pick up on songs before anything else. So the more we can make our language models really filled with emotion and intonation and excitement, often more easily they're picked up by the child. So that's always something that I try to keep in mind. But yeah, really stage one is all about just building up their repertoire of gestalts or phrases. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And we do have a lot of school-based listeners or school-based SLP listeners. And you did work in the schools for just a few years. What what do you recommend for those that might see kids one-on-one? How should they set up their sessions when, when they've got some Gestalt language processors? Yeah, it's definitely possible to do in a group. I don't have experience with that because I was lucky enough that I didn't have to do that, but I would say at least try to group them in with kids who have similar play styles. So maybe the kids who do like to pretend play, you can put them together because then you'll be able to model similar things or the kids who are really only interested in sensory or movement play, grouping them together can help. And then of course, grouping them at the language level they're at can be helpful because then, you know, if you're only modeling stage ones and they're all in stage one, that will work. Otherwise it it is a little trickier, but I would say no matter what the setup, just trying to spend kind of rotate your time between each student and model what they need and then go the next and spend some time modeling language specific to that child. Yeah, it's, it's tricky, but it's definitely doable. I'd say it's easier than trying to handle a bunch of kids with different articulation goals or such. So, yeah, yeah. I really love the way that you said that, you know, in my brain, when I was first thinking about this, it's like, oh my gosh, okay. I have to figure out the different stages, which kid is in stage one, which kid is in stage two, but the way that you broke it down, I really love that aspect of focusing on what is their play style because then you can all play together or or parallel play of what it is that they enjoy doing. And so you're not having to pull out a bunch of different materials. It's like, okay, here's our farm toys. We're going to play this. Or here are some movement toys, some sensory toys, you know, for those movement sensory kids. So I really, really, really appreciate that advice that you gave us because that is so much more attainable and so much easier to do, like you said, as opposed to a mixed group of okay, this kid is working on affixes and prefixes and this kid is working on some pretty heavy duty phonological goals or, so I appreciate that. Thank you for that. All right. So now we kind of have an idea a little bit of what stage one looks like. A lot of that declarative language and modeling some phrases that we think would be useful for them in those moments during play-based therapy is what I'm picturing as being probably the most beneficial for these learners. Yeah. So what would stage two and stage three, would those look different in the way that you would approach them? Yeah. Throughout, we're always still modeling gestalts because they can always acquire more and break them down. And also so often kids are in a mix of the stages at once. So it's not like they're only in stage one and then they're only in stage two. So there's often a bit of different strategies going on. But if the child is ready for stage two, and they will be if they have a big variety of gestalts and they are covering a 
a large variety of communicative functions. So they're suggesting and commenting and labeling what they're doing and have things to describe their sensory experiences and different things like that. So we really want to make sure they're checking a lot of boxes. Then they're going to naturally start moving to stage two on their own. And that just means they're they're taking what used to be a gestalt, which is like an untouched, often phrase, so maybe a movie line. And now they're making a small change to it. They might change out the last word. So instead of let's go to the park, they might say, let's go to the zoo, for example. So they're they're taking that, that gestalt that they once had and they're changing it a little bit. So we really, in stage two, just want to help them to do that. We want to model some more mixing and matching or flexibility with those gestalts. So if they give us a gestalt, we can model a slightly different version of that and show them, oh, okay, I can be a bit more flexible with this. I can break it up. So that's really what it's about. It's just continuing to model new gestalts as well as modeling some slightly different versions of what they're already giving us. I don't know if you want more examples of that, but. Yeah, well, I was just thinking recently you posted an example of a video of you just changed one word in the gestalt that you modeled back to your client. And so that was helpful, I think, for people, for me at least, of knowing like, okay, so that's how we start to get them to to mitigate and break some things up is just simply modeling. Yeah. Awesome. And so that's kind of what we're doing all the way through then. Well, stage three and four are very different than stage one and two. The stage three, they're really pulling out single words for the first time. And they're really being referential with language for the first time. So it really, it sounds very different because now we're not modeling at the phrase level. We will still model stage ones and twos, but we will, when we're modeling stage threes, it's very much single words or two word combinations. We're helping them to pull out these single words from their larger gestalts for the first time. So it's very referential and it's really kind of like playing I spy. So you're just looking around the room. I might say plant, mirror, shiny mirror, plants, green. So it's a lot of nouns and noun plus descriptor combinations in any order. It's kind of think beginning grammar when kids are, are learning to put two word combinations together. It's not in any particular order and different orders might mean different things. It's very experimental. So we're essentially helping them to do that experimentation and just pull out those referential words for the first time. So yeah, it sounds a lot different. Awesome. Thank you for that example. And it is kind of helpful to think about in terms of, you know, the the exact opposite of analytic language processing, you know, so it's like, okay, well, what do those first phrases kind of sound like, even though, even though the student might be a little bit older or what those sound like. Did you know that speechtherapypd.com has weekly live and interactive webinars? We are the fastest growing CE provider. Subscribe today to get access to over 750 different courses in audio or video format. Anonymous attendee asks, how do you know when they've graduated one stage and moved on to, and are ready to move on to the next? Yeah. So 
essentially when they move there themselves. So we don't decide, okay, I think they're ready. Let's go there. It's more so, oh, I'm hearing them produce some stage twos. I'm hearing them use some stage threes. Maybe it's time to go there. And then we want to look at what they're doing and see if they are truly ready for that to be our focus. So it's different between each stage, but if they're in stage one and we're trying to decide if they're ready for stage two, well, if they start producing stage twos, then like I said, we want to look and see, can our focus shift to stage two? If they have a large variety, if they're covering most of the communicative functions, if they have a large number of gestalts, then if they're starting to move to stage two, we can follow them there and put our focus there. When it goes from two to three, we really want to look at, are they using stage two more than 50% of the time in a language sample? So are they really easily and readily mitigating or mixing and matching these gestalts? Are they easily doing that and often doing that? If so, then they're probably ready for stage three if they're moving there and we can follow them. And then the transition between stage three and four is a little different because stage three, unless this child is really young, it can be really fast. But for our older students, it's such a new stage. They've never really been referential with language. They haven't pulled out single words and manipulated them. They haven't had to create their own grammar it's always been given to them in a phrase or, you know, gestalt-like fashion. So it's very different. So we want to keep them there essentially for as long as they'll let us stay there. So stage three, we want to hold them there because the more we can, the more we're going to build them for true, true success in stage four and beyond with really building grammar. So really once they're in stage three, we want to hold them there, but Once they're really moving to stage four and pushing us there, they're starting to bring in verbs and create like true beginning grammar, then we can follow them there. But hopefully that helps. Yeah, thank you. I think that is helpful. And something that you said earlier that I think is really helpful to understand as well is you can kind of be in mixed stages all at once. You know, I think I have a a family that I'm working with right now. And the mom is always, is she ready for stage three? Is she ready for stage three? Hmm. So I, she's doing this, she's doing that. And I said, yeah, she is. But let's also think about this too. You know, there, that there's a lot more, like you just said, you can kind of be in a few different stages at once, as opposed to it's a very clear cut. It's not like articulation therapy where you know, we start isolation and move our way through or the old school way of doing articulation, you know? But I will say with stage three, it, you know, a lot of kids have single word gestalt. So they have a lot of single word labels and it's not the same as being in stage three and really pulling those single words from a larger gestalt. So I'll have parents ask often like, okay, was that a stage three or are they ready for stage three? And it's often so profound when they truly arrive at stage three on their own because it sounds so different in its nature. It sounds very contemplative. Like they are really working to pull out that word and tell you, you know, tree or whatever it may be. It's very, it's very different in quality than 
the single word labels that they might have had before often. So it can often be a very much like, oh, that now we've arrived kind of moments. Yeah. So. Yeah. It almost doesn't sound like sing-songy anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. All right. If anyone else has more questions, please pop them in. But thank you for explaining what that looks like. And I really like another point that you brought up too, that is important to understand is that a lot of this is child-led. It's not us kind of bringing in the next level, like with an analytic language learner, you know, if they're saying one word, then we always model two words, right? If they're saying three words, then we're modeling, you know, just that next step. Instead, it's almost like we're following just a little bit behind them. Would you say that that's what's happening? Yeah, they're definitely leading the way as far as making the move to the next thing, the next stage. Yeah, for sure. Great. Thank you. And declarative language, I think, is it's such a fun thing to to dive into and to really kind of once I started learning, I realized how awful at declarative language I was <laughs> when you're first starting out. You know, everything is a is a question because that's that's what typical mainstream education looks like. That's how we've been taught when we were in grad school. I graduated many, many years before you did. <laughs> so that was what was modeled to us. and. It's been fun to kind of stop and think before I ask a question, you know, to rephrase it so that it's more of that declarative language piece. Yeah, it's such a huge shift. And it's almost always the the first thing that I'm teaching parents because, yeah, it's so second nature. What's this? Tell me this. Because they know what their child knows and they want to hear it and they want you to hear it. But I just always tell them that giving them the language that we want them to to say, simply modeling it is going to progress their language so much further. We have a question from Catterbury. If many children pull gestalts from movies and TV shows, are there any scripted play routines that therapists can use to teach in phase one? I realize it would need to be individualized, but maybe some basic ones about common routines. Does anything like this exist? scripted play routines I don't have any like set ones but yeah I mean you can definitely incorporate modeling gestalt with helping children to do other like functional daily tasks or deal with difficult situations so I mean, a lot of my default processors are also hyperlexic. So if that happens to be the case, if they enjoy book reading or they can read, I will often create books that are kind of like social stories that will, yeah, have gestalts and they're just packed with gestalts for them. But they will talk about, you know, one of my students, for example, has a hard time transitioning away from the park or stopping going on the swing or different things like that. So I created a book for him and it, it has lots of gestalts. Like it's time for the park. Oh, the swing is done. Just simple phrases that if he imitated them, they would make sense for him. I'm mad. I want to swing more. It's okay. We'll go again tomorrow or things like that. So you can definitely incorporate gestalts into whatever you're doing. But as far as play routines, it's, yeah, I really just, follow the the kid, but 
I will often try to, if they like a particular movie or song or a TV show, I'll definitely try to incorporate that into play. If we're, you know, one of my students loves the jungle book, so I'll reenact those scenes with him as we're playing with animals or I'll sing the the songs from it. So anything that you can tie those gestalts in, whether they're whole song gestalts or play routine um, gestalts in your play will be helpful. I don't know if I'm answering that question at all, but. I think so. I think that, I mean, Canterbury, feel free to pipe in with, if you are satisfied with that answer, but, or if you have any follow-up questions, but I, that makes sense to me, you know, that we may not necessarily use a play routine, but we can definitely use routines, just functional routines to teach gestalts and to give that, those models of language. I know I have a a client right now that I'm, let's see, Catterbury says, yes, thank you. Social stories make sense. Fantastic. I have a client right now. I'm not completely through the meaningful speech course, but this student, he's 13 and he in play has so much language and it is so rich. I can throw in a, he'll create play scenes and I can throw a curveball to him and he'll totally go with it. And he'll, you know, like the other day I was kind of, I wanted to move on to something else. And he was still playing with like a tiger and a uh, dog attacking each other. And the tiger was too strong. He was going to eat all the animals. And so then I had some bean bags and I said, asteroids incoming. And so like, he was able to take that and you know <laughs> incorporate it into his play. He's really a lot of fun. He's a lot of fun. But then when it comes to really functional language, like in the classroom or at home, he really doesn't have any. And so it's been, it's been interesting to try and figure out, okay, so how can we take this really rich language of, and I can tell him too, all right, we're going to move on in three minutes. We need to work on, you know, some other tasks that we need to do. And he'll totally wrap up the story within three minutes Mm. and it will have an ending. And it's, it's so beautiful to see, but then I'm like, okay, how do we get him to be able to, to have some functional language at home. You know, mom's really worried that things happen at school and he's not coming home and telling her about situations that have happened. So. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I often like when I worked in the schools, I like to push into the, the classrooms and model language during those routines, especially for the older students. Yeah. That's so important because really that's where they're needing the language. And also teaching teachers to do the same. And that's can be as simple as, you know, try to reduce your questioning and instead just model what you want them to say or what you think they would want to say in that moment. So yeah, having teachers doing that in the classroom as well can be really helpful, but you can totally just push in and hang out with the kid and model language that's coming up during class. But it's also, if your child is into pretend play, that's huge because you can do anything with that. So yeah, you can totally incorporate functional language, you know, protesting, self-advocacy with the characters, you know, telling people no, or I need help, or, you know, you can act out so many different scenes that incorporate that functional language. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. And thank you for the piece too on collaborating with teachers. 
because I know that in our field, this is a relatively new thing. I mean, you know, Barry Pizant, he wrote his book a little while ago where he was first talking about this type of, of language processing. But I think what March Blanc's book came out in like 1992, which yes, that was a long time ago, but it's not like it's been around forever. And all of us have had this in grad school and this type of framework. And so if it's new for us, it absolutely is going to be new for teachers and for the education system. A couple weeks ago at lunch, I was talking to some of the occupational therapists that I work with, and I was talking about how much progress that I'd seen with a shared kid that we have with one of the therapists and how a lot of it, I think, has come from us modeling language for her and me realizing that she, you know, her echolalia is meaningful and just how much progress we've seen in the last six months with her. And so I was sharing with the OT some different things that she could start utilizing and noticing in her sessions with her. And the OT had never heard anything like this before. Yeah. And so, you know, and it's OTs tend to have their ear to the ground in a way, a little bit differently than teachers because teachers have so much on their plates that that's a huge advocacy piece that we could do and a huge education piece that we can collaborate with teachers and start to give them some things to think about. Yeah. And I find with teachers, yeah, they do have a lot on their plate. So keep it really simple. Just give them the actionable steps and it'll probably be a lot more successful. And yeah, once they see that it, it is working and it helps them to understand the student they're usually really grateful for that. It doesn't really add more to their plate. It's just doing things a little bit different. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when we can help their students be more functional in the classroom. You know, this example that I just shared about the the 13-year-old not being able to come home and tell his mom what happened, the teacher had told his mom what had happened. So when mom came and asked him about the incident that occurred, he said, it's okay. It's okay. Because, and I said, well, yeah, mom, like, I think that's what was modeled to him. He was okay. Hmm. You know, he wasn't bleeding. There was, yes, he had injury from another student, but he wasn't bleeding. And so I'm sure the teacher said, it's okay. It's okay. And so that's what he was coming home to tell you. So, I mean, there are ways that we can, you know, definitely collaborate with teachers and give them some of that insight that we have. Yeah, and that's a great piece. And if teachers and parents can just have communication about what happened at school, you know, your child may not be able to tell you, but if you know, then you can model that for them. You can at least give them that language like, oh, I got hurt you know, whatever it may be. And you can, you can at least model how they could tell you about those things and give them some new assaults along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Just to plug a previous episode, we have Linda Murphy on The Speech Life and she did an entire episode just talking about declarative language. And so if you are wanting to practice declarative language and she also offered a lot of really great wisdom that we can give to teachers and, and parents when it comes to using declarative language for all of our students. Awesome. Um, yeah. So for all of our current listeners, 
Are you taking advantage of the certificate tracker? Not only does it store your certificates from all of your evidence-based and practical courses from speechtherapypd.com, but you can also upload certificates earned from other CE providers. It's the easiest way to store and keep track of your CEUs. Just another perk of membership. All right, so we've talked about, we kind of really jumped in after the three and the two. What is one actionable strategy that you have for us? Declarative language is definitely a huge one. Just learning how to to model without expectation of imitation and just being comfortable with that, being comfortable with a lot of silence as well, because yeah, so often I'll see, okay, I know I need to model new gestalt, so I'm just going to keep modeling and hopefully something will land, but so often it's, we need to give something and then give a long wait for the child to either repeat or give their own thing, but often it can backfire when we're giving too many things. So that silence is really golden. I mean, another big actionable step, I guess I didn't really touch on a huge part of stage one and beyond is really just taking the time to build language trust. So before we're offering new language models for the child, we should really just be affirming their echolalia. So that might mean repeating it back to them. It might mean joining in on their script or song if they like that. Some don't. And it might just mean acknowledging. So even if you don't understand what they're saying, or you're not going to imitate the whole thing, just acknowledging, yeah, I hear you. Oh yeah. That's really the the first step. Because if you don't have that trust in a lot of these students, They've had their echolalia ignored or worse for their whole life. So having someone that's coming in there and affirming it, repeating it back to them, really acknowledging it might be something totally new and it can take a long time just to to build that trust. So that's really the, the most important piece. If you skip that, then those language models you're giving are often not really taken by the child depends on the kid, but yeah. So that's a big piece as well as just affirming whatever they're giving you. Awesome. Thank you for that. You know, you gave us a lot with that one actionable strategy. I love the the way that you just set up building their trust, that that's the first thing. I mean, that's something that we've learned in grad school, no matter when you went to grad school, that idea of building rapport with your clients. And, and you brought up a really great point of these kids have, they've been ignored more or less their whole lives, whether they're three years old, that's still their whole life versus, you know, a 13 year old, that's his whole life. And so it's a very similar experience in that way, no matter how old they are and how, how powerful that can be when, especially from someone who knows if they've had other therapies you know, if they've been to an ABA therapist or an occupational therapist or a different speech therapist who isn't trying to necessarily fix them, that that can probably feel really powerful to them, you know, being acknowledged and yeah, being seen for who they are. Do you have any examples of maybe where you've just seen kids light up 
when you've acknowledged their echolalia? Yeah, I mean, even today in a session, I'm working with not even three-year-olds. So she has a lot of, most of her scripts are songs from Coco Melon. And since she, she's not like, she hasn't motorically caught up to be able to produce these songs very intelligibly. So a lot of it is really just listening to the intonation and like trying to figure out, okay, it must be this song or just waiting for a parent to tell me <laughs> it's that song. But when I am able to figure it out and give her those lyrics and, and join in, you can just see the, the excitement and, you know, the eye contact that's normally not there is there. And yeah, you can definitely see the, the switch when you're really affirming their language. And yeah. And I mean, you can also really a big sign that you're modeling new things that land for the student is that eye contact. Alexandra from Meaningful Speech talks about bingo eye contact. So if, you know, the kid is saying, for example, wheels on the bus, like you gave and you model, I want to go home. And they look at you like, you got it. That's what I've been trying to say. You know, you got it right. If you model, I want to go home and they don't respond, you maybe didn't guess it right. So really when you're trying to guess and model what you think they're, they're trying to say, that reaction will often tell you. So, yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that example. And then that, that concept of bingo is really, really awesome. And that's so fun as a therapist to experience that too. And you, you do feel that, that connection with the student when that happens or the client. And I also, I mean, you, you really laid it out very beautifully of what the first couple sessions are going to look like. It's going to look like building that rapport. And then you said, you know, using declarative language, but a lot of silence. And I think that that's been definitely the hardest part for me. You know, we think, oh, they come to speech therapy. We need to give them all of the language. So that's definitely been an area of growth for me is watching not only the declarative language piece, but then remembering to the silence and also really trying to help parents remember those pieces too, I think is pretty powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any tips on working with parents on what declarative language and silence in a session looks like? Yeah, I mean, like I shared, I kind of describe it because a lot of my parents that I work with, they've had speech therapy in the past and they've already been taught kind of how to use self-talk or parallel talk. So, which is definitely not going to hurt the, the child, but there's, like I mentioned, like certain tweaks to that, that will work better for Gestalt processors. So like use that, talk about what's happening you know, just narrate what's going on, but try to do it in their words, try to do it in, okay, if I say this thing and my child repeats it, will it make sense coming out of their mouth? So really trying to make that switch while still using these, this parallel talk, self-talk. Yeah. So that's my biggest thing usually is just talk about what they're doing, give it to them in their words, and then 
model something and, and wait. If it feels like an uncomfortable amount of time, wait a little longer and then it's probably a good amount of time. Yeah, and that can be super hard, but that's where I, I often see kids say things that I wouldn't have expected or they may not have said if we were just continuing to, to narrate without giving them that space. So, yeah. Awesome. Do you have any examples of kids that you've worked with either currently or in the past where this framework and just like it totally bought you in from the beginning? Not that, I mean, we know that we have like the, the science and the evidence to back it up, but are there any examples of where you were just like, oh my goodness, yes, this is changing my life and my world, you know, and my therapy. So, yeah, I mean, I'd say most students have that reaction. Yeah. And it's really cool to be able to teach parents to, to do the same. Cause I can often see their connection with their child really grow. But I mean, I started working with a, a student who is eight and minimally speaking had like a few single word labels, pretty much just ocean animal labels. He could tell you any, all the different types of whales and sharks and such. But beyond that, not a lot of gestalts or phrases of any kind, but I could tell he was a gestalt processor because occasionally he would like sing whole songs and such. But this kid had had speech therapy in the past. And mom said it was very structured, very focused on like single words or using sentence strips. I want different, very structured, very analytic style stuff. So yeah, I just went in and I knew he liked ocean animals. So I brought ocean animal books and stickers and toys And we just started where he was at with really just kind of labeling the ocean animals in the books because that's what he wanted to do. And then I expanded those into more of a gestalt, like it's a whale instead of just whale. And he picked that up pretty quickly. And then I started modeling some, some different comments like, oh, it's scary or it's spiky and over time being really repetitive with those, he's picked those up and now his language has just blossomed and it really just took, you know, taking that, those demands away, those expectations away and just following his lead, affirming the language he was giving and modeling other phrases that were of interest to him and, you know, at his level and with a lot of emotion and such. And yeah, he's really picked them up quickly. And yeah, so that's one example, but yeah. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I work with some students that are older and they're kind of at that one word labeling and they've had speech therapy for years, you know, and it hasn't necessarily worked, but I haven't, I haven't yet heard some of those scripts which makes sense because if they are older and they've been ignored, why continue to use them, you know? And so, but I, there are certain things that they might do where I'm thinking, okay, if analytic speech therapy didn't work, 
let's try this. Or, you know, like maybe I have seen them act out maybe just one thing or seen one tiny script, but that was really helpful to see how you started with what he, where he was at with those one word scripts, but then expanding it. I think that's really helpful, especially for some of us that are working, you know, in the school system and we might have kids that have had traditional speech therapy. And I don't want to say traditional, what, what you're doing and what the language acquisition, natural language acquisition framework, it's still traditional speech therapy, but it's not in the way that we've ever been taught or we've right. ever done. It's not um, as common. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's really helpful. You know, it's like, okay, this kid isn't a lost cause. We just start from the very beginning, even though they might be 13, 14, 15 years old, it's okay. Right. And it, it is a lot more work because those, yeah, I mean, I see such a difference in the students who have had past therapy and if it was very compliance-based or very, very structured, lots of repetitive sentence strips and stuff, these kids are often super prompt dependent and just super kind of stuck in that language that has been rewarded and repeated. So it can take years to really break down that prompt dependency and break down that, you know, taught language that they've had. So yeah, it can be really difficult since take a long time. AAC can help some of these students kind of break through, but yeah, it can be, it can be difficult for sure, but always possible. And Marge Blanc in her book, she talks a lot about old, older students and how like she started with teenagers and they made it to the grammar stage, but it took like a decade. You know, it can be a long haul, but it's totally possible if you are really committed. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you, you know, of like, of it's okay to come back to stage one and model those stage ones you know, even though they might look like a stage three because they're labeling things, but it's not a true stage three. Um, I think that that is, that can be really difficult for those of us who are still new to this and haven't dove into all the courses that are available. You know, I'm currently in the Meaningful Speech course, and I know you mentioned Marge Blanc's course on Northern Speech Services and her book as well. So there's a lot, a lot of information out there, but sometimes just diving into a course is really helpful to kind of make your way through that information that's out there. Yeah. I know my brain likes to have step-by-step instructions and yeah, it does a great job of really putting it all together because there's a lot and I'm constantly learning new things and yeah, it's, the process is pretty simple, but it's definitely complex as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and that's kind of the fun thing about working with language with, with kids is it's not so black and white, which makes it, makes it fun to dive into. All right, Katya. Well, thank you so much for joining us, but before you leave, if anyone else has questions, feel free to pop them in. This is your last chance. Can you just recap your three, two, one for us? Yeah. Let's see. The First thing was three things that school-based SLP should know. So that was that there's two ways to process language, gestalt and analytic. 
that natural language acquisition or NLA describes the stages that these students go through. And there's four main stages of that Gestalt language processors go through to arrive at self-generated, spontaneous grammar. And then there that most, if not all, autistic students are Gestalt processors. So that's a super important piece to know. And then resources, Meaningful Speech course, and Marge Blanc's books and courses. And we talked about some actionable strategies like using declarative language, reducing questioning, reducing expectations and demands, and then really giving a lot of wait time as well as time to just build that, that language trust. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Katya, for being here. And I forgot to, I was going to comment on that, that idea of, of not having expectations for when we model. I know that's a big one for one of my parents that I was working with today he was making some funny comments today of why are you trying to get my daughter to be a Broadway star, you know, of, of the big intonation and things that I was modeling. And I was also coaching him on trying to do as well. And that was his comment. And then he is, we're still trying to break him of the, okay, say this, say this, you know, and, and I mean, that doesn't really work with our, our analytic language learners. So it's, we don't want those kids to say back to us. Okay, say right. thank you. Yeah, exactly. You're going to pick up that whole piece. <laughs> and right. not only is it just, we don't know what they want to say truly, so we shouldn't be telling them, but also, yeah, they're just going to imitate that whole thing. Yeah. 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 So it's, a, I really appreciated you just making that, that point of, you know, really eliminating our expectations of what it is, which goes back to that point of we're trying to guess what they're trying to say. Right. We don't actually know. And so they're not going to pick up things that don't match with what they're trying to say. Right. Yeah. Which comes into the detective work of diving into these gestalts, which makes it so fun and so hard at the same time. But that's been, that's actually been, I've noticed with my parents that have really bought in and understand that has actually made our, our relationship a lot stronger of trying yeah. to do the detective work together. Yeah. It's so amazing when you have parents in your corner that are, that understand that and are really good at it and dedicated to it. because It can be a lot of work. Yeah. 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 And then just trying to figure out, okay, how do I reframe this for this parent so that he understands yeah. what it is that I'm trying to, to do here and to accomplish with his daughter. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great thing. Well, Katya, do you have any lasting remarks for any of us as we head out tomorrow and start to work with our Gestalt language processors? I don't think so. I think we covered a lot of good stuff here. Hopefully I didn't leave anything important out. (laughs) Uh, No, I don't think so. I think you did a fantastic job of covering everything Gestalt language processing in just an hour. Like you said, there's a lot more. We definitely point you to the resources and hopefully you feel a little bit more enlightened, but Katya did a pretty good job of laying down the basics for all of you. We definitely recommend for you 
to check those things out. And we hope to see you all back here soon. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Katya, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Thank you. Thanks for joining us at This Speech Life. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.